scripture passage this evening is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. It's found in your pew Bibles on page 1,524, if you'd like to use the pew Bibles provided for you. This is the famous passage of the Peter's Confession of Christ. Hear now the word of God. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Along with our uh, scripture passage this evening, we have Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 31. It can be found in the back of your green Psalter hymnals on page 42. And uh, let's say the answers together with one voice or in unison. What are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both preaching and discipline open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. How does preaching the gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is open by proclaiming and publicly declaring to each and every believer that... As often as he accepts the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of what Christ has done, truly forgives all his sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that, as long as they do not repent, the anger of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, if anyone, though called a Christian, professes unchristian teachings or lives an unchristian life, if after repeated brotherly counsel, he refuses to abandon his errors and wickedness, and if after being reported to the church, that is, to its officers, he fails to respond also to their admonition, such a one the officers exclude from the Christian fellowship by withholding the sacraments from him, and God himself excludes him from the kingdom of Christ. Such a person, when he promises and demonstrates genuine reform, is received again as a member of Christ and of his church. That's the teaching of the catechism. I'm sure all of you 
know what these are. They look like keys. They jingle like keys. They smell like keys. They're keys, right? Much of our life revolves around keys, especially if you can't find them. But we don't often think about what keys do until we need them. For instance, like the other day when I locked myself out of my office, right? And had had my keys inside my office. Luckily, Gail is prepared and she has extra keys that are laying around for us. Keys are meaningful too. For instance, it would mean something if I gave a key to a friend to our house. Like, you're welcome to come anytime. It presents that kind of symbol, right? Because giving them a key is like saying, my house is open to you. It would mean something else if I told that friend, I want my key back. Because it would mean, I don't want you to come into my house anymore. It's closed to you. That's what keys do. They open and they close. And that's what we're going to talk about this evening when we're discussing Lord's Day 31. The, the theme is this. Christ has given the keys of the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom to his church. And we're going to break it down like this. First, I want to talk about the kingdom. We know in some fashion what keys do, but we need to know, we need to define more what the kingdom is. And I'm going to put this section in two different ways. I'm going to talk about the church. But I'm also going to talk about, you know, beyond the church. Because there's, there's two ways that the, the key, the kingdom, speaks to the church directly and specifically and narrowly. But also, uh, we can't be so specific that we say, 100% the kingdom is the church. Because we believe that, although some uh, may not be a part of the visible church because of God's grace, um, they may have heard the gospel, like, let's say, at a VBS and believed. But, you know, somehow never found themselves uh, as members of a church. So we believe that that is possible, although not, uh, not ordinary. And then the second thing we're talking about is keys, the keys. And uh, the, the catechism breaks this down for us pretty simply. Uh, one of the keys is gospel or gospel proclamation. Another one is uh, church discipline or what it calls um, uh, Christian discipline. Discipline. So the gospel and discipline. And I'm probably going to misspell discipline like 18 times tonight. So count them up for me. And if you tell me how many times I misspelled uh, discipline, I'll give you a Wilhelmina after church. All right, let's start with number one, the kingdom. And what I want us to get after here is we need to figure out 
what the kingdom is before we can figure out what the keys are actually doing. So uh, this is a bit of a biblical theological lesson because kingdom is not defined for us in our passage in the scriptures, Matthew 16. It's simply stated by Christ in verse 19, uh, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What exactly is the kingdom? Well, if you Google search something, you'll find this. Kingdom of God occurs 68 times in 10 different New Testament books. And the kingdom of heaven is used only 32 times. And it occurs only in the gospel of Matthew. The question is, are these the same thing? And the answer is yes. Uh, Matthew's use of kingdom of heaven is equivalent to uh, the other gospel's use or the other New Testament writer's use of kingdom of God. It's the same thing. They're synonymous. In fact, Christ uses these terms interchangeably in his interaction with the rich young ruler in the gospel of Matthew. He uses kingdom of God, then he uses kingdom of heaven. They're the same thing. Uh, But is the kingdom, this kingdom, limited to the future millennial end times kingdom of Christ, or is it limited only to the heavenly kingdom of God, um, as in not physical, not earthly uh, kingdom of God? Well, consider what John the Baptist said when he was preparing the way for the Messiah. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Consider what Jesus said at the beginning of his, his ministry. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. So we get from that that Christ came into this world to bring the kingdom of God. It's near when Christ comes into the world. Christ brought the kingdom with his life, death, and burial, and resurrection, and ascension. That kingdom was inaugurated when Christ died upon the cross and said it is finished, and then resurrected three days later, and then went and sat at the right hand of God the Father. And we're told in scriptures that even now, the Father is placing all enemies under Christ's feet. So it's not only near, but it's now. This kingdom. He's now reigning at the right hand of the Father. Colossians 1.13 tells us that He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. That's a present reality. It was a reality for the the believers in Colossae. It's It's a reality today. So in Matthew 16, Christ tells Peter that on the rock, and there's much debate about this, but we can say on the rock of the confession, I call you, you are Peter, and on this Petra, it's a play on words that we have going on here, I will build my church. I will build my church in the gates of Hades, will not overcome it. When Christ tells Peter that on the rock of the confession that he had made, he would build his church, then he says to Peter, and through Peter to the other apostles, that he will give them the keys of the kingdom. So the kingdom of heaven, is it the church? Because on this church, or on this rock, I will build my church, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Christ is connecting these two very closely, right? He's paralleling them. He's wanting us to consider them together as a unit. In part, yes, the kingdom of Christ is manifested most clearly within what we call the visible church here on earth. In fact, 
Pastor Brinks this morning had a very strong quote from John Calvin about this. Um, John Calvin has been noted to say, no one can have uh, God as their father if they do not have the church as their mother. So there's a very close connection between the church and this reality of the kingdom. But it's not limited to the church. It has an intimate connection to the church, but it goes, what we could say, beyond the church. It goes beyond the church. It is is possible, we could say, that on the role of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, there will be names that are not found on the membership role of the church. This is, in one way, what differentiates us from the Catholics who believe otherwise. If you're not a Catholic, then you're... That's what their teaching states. Okay? The kingdom of heaven is the realm on earth where Christ reigns and to which belong all people who look to Him as their Savior and King. So the kingdom is the church, but goes beyond the church. It is the church, but it goes beyond the church. So we can talk about the kingdom when we consider the church locally, universally, worldwide. But we can also say that there's an element of kingdom reality that goes beyond that because God's grace is magnificent, far-spreading. The gospel is proclaimed. The scriptures are found everywhere. But I will tell you that It is not very common for someone to believe in Jesus Christ and to have found salvation in Jesus Christ who then does not want to be part of his church. Maybe it's not always the case that church is easily accessible to a Muslim in a Muslim country who comes to Christ through a radio ministry and doesn't have 18 churches in his village to choose from. There are situations like that. So we can't narrowly define the kingdom by the church. It goes beyond it, but we can identify the kingdom with with the church. So now that we've determined what the kingdom of heaven is, uh, we can look at what the keys do. We can look at what the keys do. And that's when we're going to take a closer look at uh, our Scripture passage, a closer look at the, the catechism. The first question in this Lord's Day, if you remember, is a follow-up to question and answer 82 of Lord's Day 30 concerning, concerning the exclusion of unbelievers from the Lord's Supper. It says in question 82, Are those to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they say and do that they are unbelieving and ungodly? And it says, No, that would dishonor God's covenant. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people from the Lord's Supper by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. So, of course, the next question should be, what are the keys of the kingdom? And that's what we have. What are the keys of the kingdom? 
The answer is twofold. The keys, we are told, are the preaching of the gospel and Christian discipline. So let's look at uh, preaching first, okay? When Christ spoke to Peter and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and then he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, Christ is here talking about an authority given unto the apostles, and then from the apostles to those we could say who have carried on the ministry of the apostles, who though are not eyewitnesses of the the risen Savior, we could say officers of the church, now have the same authority, and this authority is one in which the words which are spoken affect the reality in heaven and the reality on earth. And if you think about that, that's a pretty weighty thing. That, that Christ is saying, Peter, and through Peter to the other apostles, that whatever you proclaim on earth will be bound in heaven. This is talking about a salvation reality. And it's not because Christ is saying, I give you, Peter, the power to save people. It's because Christ understands that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And they are going to be sent to proclaim the good news of Christ. Since Christ calls these keys... They do what keys do. They open and they close. And so there's an open and closed reality to both the key of the preaching of the gospel and then also the key of Christian discipline. We're looking here at preaching. When it comes to preaching, there's an official use, which is what we would call uh, the ministry of the word by an ordained minister preaching on the Lord's Day. That's what we call like an official use of this key of the kingdom. And to me, I think the catechism is telling us that every time a pastor gets up and preaches a sermon, the gospel should be proclaimed, should be clear, should be noted. This is what it says. How does preaching the gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? This is the command of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is open by proclaiming and publicly declaring to each and every believer that as often as he accepts the gospel promise and true faith, God, because of what Christ has done, truly forgives all his sins. That's, uh, That's the good part, right? That's why preaching on the Lord's day should not be taken lightly. Not by the pastor who is preparing and proclaiming and hopefully preaching to himself, but also not by the congregation who is sitting underneath that preaching. Because something spiritual, a reality, is occurring. It's an opportunity by your Heavenly Father as the the gospel is presented for you to continue to, in true faith, open your heart and believe once again that Christ died for you and that all your sins are forgiven. Not only that, but for our, our children, our covenant children, every time the gospel is proclaimed, it's an opportunity for them to grab hold of the promises of God given to them in their baptism, and believe on the Lord 
and the faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why, to be honest, I would prefer that the kids be in the worship service because it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for the keys of the kingdom to be at work in their lives and the opening of the heart of true faith and believing. Preaching the gospel is serious because we're told that as often as each believer embraces the gospel promise with true faith, God forgives all their sins. Once again, we need to see in the catechism, it's continuing to point us back to Christ, Christ, his work, his sufficiency, all that he's done. It's all that. Baptism points to Christ. The Lord's Supper points back to Christ and believing in Christ. And the keys of the kingdom's purpose and use is to point us back to Christ. But there's also, you know, a broader application of, of this key uh, than, than just the official use by the minister of the word on the Lord's Day preaching the gospel. There's a, a broader application. It says here, by proclaiming and publicly declaring. That means that the Word of God tells us that the gospel is meant to be proclaimed to all without thought of their differences in age, without thought of anything. The gospel is to be proclaimed to all people. And I'm sorry, folks, if you expect me to get the gospel out to everyone, mm-mm, this is not going to work. So a, a broader application of, of the keys of the kingdom being at work in the preaching of the gospel would be something like VBS, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the children, the young people of our community. would be like sharing a, 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 a gospel presentation, a gospel track to somebody you run into at Dunkin' Donuts. would be like sitting down with your neighbor who's going through a difficult time and, and, and you realizing that they don't have any hope, they have nothing to, to cling to, nothing that's keeping them up, and saying, you need, you need to hear this good news of the gospel. Right? The opening of the kingdom by the by the sharing of the gospel, the good news, by the preaching of the gospel is, is glorious. This is, this is the fun part. We give a, a check mark to that, right? But here's what we neglect. The closing. The keys of the kingdom, they open and they close, right? If every time the gospel is preached, God is given an opportunity to us to believe, he's also giving us an opportunity to reject. So we have these contrasting realities. Believe and reject. Or believe and not believe, right? This is the flip side of the coin. This is the element of preaching which is most often neglected in our day and age. We like, to sell, we like to tell people that God has a wonderful plan for their life. We like to tell people that Jesus loves them and died for them and that, and that we'd like for them to believe in Jesus and not, and, and not but we, you know, we don't want to say about the, you know, the sin and how you're dead in sins and transgressions and how you, how you, you're going to hell. If you don't turn, 
and believe in Jesus Christ. You're going to hell. I mean, when I say that, it's, it's harsh, right? It's rough. There is, there is a, a rough sign to this key. The closing is a difficult sign to the key. In fact, when I first came to Reformed Convictions, one of the most relieving things to me was that I knew if I went out and preached the gospel, if I went out and shared the gospel and nobody believed, that it actually wasn't a failure. Because there is a condemnation, there is a judgment that comes with the, with the good news of Jesus Christ. It's this. If Jesus Christ has come into this world to save sinners, and you are a sinner, and you spit in his face, judgment is coming. Righteous, perfect, just wrath is upon you. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the anger of God and eternal condemnation rests on them. Rests on them. A proclamation is made to unbelievers and false converts that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God abides on them. In fact, Romans 2 says that this is the mercy of God leading to repentance. When Christ came into the world, a divide occurred. Those who would believe in him and those who would not, if you don't believe me, just take it from God's word. John 3.16, we love it, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict, the judgment. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. What is John 3, 16 through 21 telling us? It's telling us that because Christ has come, either you believe or you do not believe. There's no gray area. Either you believe or do not believe. And so as the gospel is being presented, the key of the kingdom being presented in the proclamation of the gospel, you have two responses as your options. Believe or reject. I believe. I embrace. And we understand that that true faith that we have is something given to us, born in us by the Holy Spirit. So we don't think that we're any better because we believe the good news of the gospel but there are those who the hardness of their hearts and the sinfulness and their rebellion continues to have them reject the good news. The kingdom is closed to them, or not opened. But we continue to pray and we continue to proclaim and we continue to share because we know that God is gracious and God can change their heart. It's like I always say, 
when people say, well, if you believe God is sovereign over salvation, then why pray for anyone? Why pray for anything? And I say, well, if you don't believe God is sovereign, why pray at all? God's in control. And God brings people to faith in his son, Jesus Christ, at all different points in their lives, at all different ages. So we continue to believe and trust in the faithfulness of God. But there's one more key, and that is, ooh, I don't know. I was hoping I wouldn't get to this, so we just wouldn't have to talk about it. I think I spelled it right. Discipline. Catechism calls this Christian discipline. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? Oh, how easy is it to skirt around this reality? As I was studying this, I thought to myself, you know, back in the day when there was really only one church, the Roman Catholic Church, it was pretty easy to, to, uh, to have church discipline because they couldn't, go to any, they couldn't go to any other church, right? And then even in Reformation times, there were so few Reformed churches that it was easy to, to have this form of Christian discipline. But now, when you try to, in kindness and love and God's grace and with patience, have Christian discipline in your church, it's so easy for someone to say, see you later. I'll just go down the road to the other church. And sometimes there's not even any communication between that church and the church they left to determine why they left or what went on. Let's get into this, though. When the preaching of the gospel, or where the preaching of the gospel is a key to be used upon everyone indiscriminately, we talked about that, both uh, the opening and the closing, we're told, is proclaiming and publicly declaring, right? This key is to be used only on uh, Christians. That's why it's called Christian discipline. Or it's to be used on those who proclaim to be Christians or profess to be Christians. We are told that if a professing Christian begins to push for unchristian teachings or their lives are categorized by sin, action is to be taken. If I could have chose uh, two passages for uh, my, my sermon tonight, I would have chose Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And if you want to flip over to Matthew 18 and go to verse 15, a brother who sins against you, um, this is what I would have chose, okay? And there's actually a very interesting connection between these passages and this passage. Jesus also says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus himself is making a connection between uh, the key of the preaching of the gospel and the key of Christian discipline as well. So let's look at it. Right here it says, if anyone, though called a Christian, professes unchristian teachings or lives an unchristian life, okay, let's have some caveats here, all right? We need a couple caveats. Someone who's professing unchristian teachings does not mean ignorance of biblical truth. If I come up to you and I ask you to explain to me the Trinity, and you say some things that sound a little bit modalistic, I'm not going to go to the next council meeting and say we need to have some Christian discipline on so-and-so. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? Okay? 
We're not also talking about accidentally wording something wrong that ends up being a heresy, because if that's the case, you guys probably have a few on me because I say a lot of words up here and I probably mess up. Okay? Or we're not talking here about having a different opinion about secondary issues, okay? So secondary issues are things like um, what you believe about the end times. Are you premillennial? Are you amillennial? Are you postmillennial? Secondary issues are, are, are other things like that, okay? The, if, if you have a different view on that than me, but at the end, Christ is king and we're all together for, forever and eternity praising him in the new heavens and the new earth, you're not going to get Christian discipline, okay? This that it's talking about here, unchristian teachings, is arguing for and fighting for and being committed to teachings that undermine the basic foundational truths of Scripture and of Christ's good news. They are adamant about them. They are deceived and deceiving. They're committed. For instance, if somebody came in here and said, oh, don't you know that Christians don't sin anymore? Yeah, we're sinless. We're perfect. And if you think we still sin, then you're, then you're damned to hell. That's when we're going to have to start working through things with that person, right? And here's an example. If that's the case, if a person comes in and they believe in a, in a heresy called sinless perfectionism, and we bring them to the scriptures and we say, have you looked at this first? Does this make sense to you? And, and they begin to, sh- to change and realize, oh, okay, I, I was wrong. I, I, see, I see what God's word says here and I, and then that's all that's needed. But if they stubbornly commit to it and they say, you're wrong, I'm right, and they stick to it, that's when we begin the process of Christian discipline. Because that's going to cause divisions in the church. That's going to cause people who are going to have hurt feelings. That's going to cause others who maybe in this church begin to think, oh, maybe I'm not saved because I still sin. And that's not good, right? We don't want that. Okay, then let's also have a caveat about this unchristian life. Okay, unchristian life is not falling or stumbling. It's not messing up and repenting and by God's grace moving forward. It's not the flesh and the sinful nature that believers with true faith continue to battle against. It's not continuing to have a a struggle against a particular sin that seems like it always keeps coming back and you're always fighting it. This is a professing Christian who has turned away from biblical ethics in a way that is proud and unrepentant. This is a professed believer who is now living a sinful lifestyle that is clearly sinful from the scriptures and expresses no remorse over it. This is what we're talking about, for instance, if someone were to... um, to cheat on their spouse and then begin living with their lover. Or other examples like that. Okay? And then we went to them as individuals and as church and as officers and we pleaded with them and we showed them in the scriptures what it, what, what's wrong with the situation that they're doing and we asked them to repent of their sin and to turn away from their sin and they said, no, God wants me to be happy. That's when Christian discipline happens, okay? Now that the caveats have been made, let's look at what the process is meant to be. And it's found right here in Matthew 18, verse 15 and following 
from Jesus Christ himself. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or more witnesses. Two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. This is an authority given by Christ to his church and those he's put in leadership over it. But I want you to notice something very specific about the wording here. It says, uh, if anyone, though called a Christian, professes unchristian teachings or lives an unchristian life, if after repeated brotherly counsel, and it can be sisterly too, okay? Repeated brotherly or sisterly counsel, he refuses to abandon his errors and wickedness, and if after being reported to the church, to the officers of the church, That is, to its officers, he fails to respond to their admonition. Such a one, the officers exclude from the Christian fellowship by withholding the sacraments from him, and God himself excludes him from the kingdom of Christ. Now, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it. If repeated brotherly and sisterly counsel isn't happening if you aren't going one-to-one to the person who's offended you or you think is in putting himself in a, a difficult situation or walking towards a path of sin or falling into a trap of unchristian un, un teachings, but you bypass all these steps and go straight to report it to the elders, because that happens. It's been done then the process is not working the way it's meant to work. The reason why I said the theme was that Christ gave the church the keys of the kingdom is because I'm not the only one who's supposed to be preaching the gospel. I am doing the official ministry of the word from the pulpit, but you need to be preaching and sharing the gospel as well. And at the same, in the same way, we, as officers of the church, should not be the only ones who are being involved in Christian discipline. Because if you, brothers and sisters, can care and love for your fellow brothers and sisters before they fall into these unchristian teachings or begin to live these unchristian lives, you can point them in the right direction. You can come alongside them. You can give them repeated brotherly counsel. If you are keeping each other safe and protecting each other and caring for each other, then more often than not, this step never has to happen. That's the last step. Reporting it to the elders and having them cut off from the sacraments of the church, not able to take the Lord's Supper until they reform their ways. That's the final step. That's not the first step. And I'll tell you the exact reason why it's the case. Because when you hear church discipline and you get a bad taste in your mouth because you've heard of so many 
ways it's been handled the wrong way. Yeah, part of that is because somehow, some way, the consumeristic mindset has gone into the church. And imagine for yourself if you think you're just church shopping and then you get disciplined at your church. Those don't go together. So we have to have the right mindset about the church, right? We have to believe, brothers and sisters, we have to believe that this is a place where we are called to continue to grow in godliness and holiness. We have to believe that this is more than simply preference or what we like or what we enjoy or what we can get out of it. Because if you're here at church to get something out of it for you, and then you get sanctioned by the officers, that doesn't seem to go together, does it? But if you're here at the church because you know that living the Christian life is not done alone and that you are commanded by the Scriptures to not forsake the gathering together and that you are called by the Scriptures to place yourselves under the spiritual care of elders, then you know the importance of this. Christian discipline. You know the importance of it. And you understand that the way it is meant to be done is to be with all love and care and sincerity and with the intention of restoration. When I discipline my children, I don't send my sons to their room to never let them out again. I don't send them to the room so that they know that their father hates them and does not love them and does not want them around anymore. I send them to the room. I give them a spanking because I want them to know that sin hurts and it kills and it will hurt your life and it will destroy your life. And the only way the church has been given the ability to be able to show the power of sin and the the corruption of sin and the, the way that sin can hurt is to say, look, we've tried all that we can do to love you by repeated brotherly counsel. We tried all that we can do to love you one-to-one, and the only way that we can show you that the path you're choosing right now is dangerous is by showing you that at this point, you're outside the church. In hopes that you would see the error of your ways and turn to Christ. That is the point and intention of Christian discipline. It's loving discipline. What father does not love his children? Right? Belgian Confession of Faith, Article 29, talks about the marks of the true church. It says this, The true church is to be recognized by the following marks. It practices the pure preaching of the gospel. It maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them, and it exercises church discipline for correcting and punishing sins. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it, and regarding Jesus Christ as its only head. Hereby, the true church can certainly be known, and no one has the right to separate from it. Those who are of the church may be recognized by the marks of Christians. They believe in Jesus Christ, the only Savior. They flee from sin and pursue righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor without turning to the right or the left, and crucify their flesh and its works. Although great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their life. 
They appeal constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of Jesus Christ and whom they have the forgiveness of their sins through faith in him. People of God, every time you hear the preaching of the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if it ever came to it in this church where Christian discipline will be necessary, I pray that it would be done right and in the right spirit and any who it would come upon would know that it is in love and with the purpose turning you from your sin and your path that is going to harm you and hurt you to the, to the wonderful blood of Jesus Christ in restoration. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We ask that you would give us a confidence in your gospel and the power of your gospel. The power of the Holy Spirit which accompanies the preaching of the gospel, opening and closing the kingdom to many. May you embolden us to proclaim and publicly declare to one another as believers, but also to those who are outside the church, unbelievers and hypocrites, that they must, that we all must turn and believe in your, Savior, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father God, may we also never see the day when we have to use the key of Christian discipline, but knowing, Lord, that we live in a fallen and sinful world, we may see the day, and many of us may have already seen the days in which this key has been used, but we pray moving forward that you would encourage us to repeated brotherly counsel, that we would love one another, seeking to turn each other away from sin and wrongful teachings, false teachings, that we may seek to avoid by every means the necessity to bring things before the officers of the church and that, Lord, you would spare us from needing to exclude anybody from Christian fellowship and withhold the sacraments from them. But if we ever do, if you call us to it, may you give us the grace, the kindness, and the love which you have shown for us, your children, and disciplining us in order to turn that person back to your son, Jesus Christ, and be received again as a member of your son and of his church. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.